Thank you. Uh, my hair started turning grey about 10 years ago. Uh, because for the last decade, I have taught all four of my children to drive. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's a correlation in that. You'll have to ask them. It's true. <laughs> but when we were in li living in Auckland, I taught uh, uh, Naomi, James and Bethany, our oldest three, uh, to drive. Uh, Chris helped. She was really good at that. And uh, one Sunday after church, I took my son James out for a driving lesson. And I thought it'd be quite good to learn about driving uh, uh, along the motorways and uh, crowded roads. So we headed out to Auckland Airport. And as we were going along George Bolt Drive, a high-speed motorcade came towards us from the airport. There were police on bikes who stopped at every intersection to ensure that the vehicles behind, uh, uh, to ensure that, you know, that, that nobody would come onto the motorway while the motorcade was coming past. And there was a police car with flashing lights at the head of the motorcade so that everybody would pull over and let them go past. And the motorcade itself was three large black SUVs with blacked out windows. And you couldn't see in uh, to them. You couldn't see uh, which of the vehicles uh, the important person was in and which one contained in my maybe my overactive imagination and uh, watching all those uh, adventure movies came into my mind then, you couldn't tell which one contained all the heavily armed security guards either. It was quite a sight. Um, and it felt like being in a movie. It didn't feel like a Sunday drive in Auckland. It was unsettling to think that in New Zealand such measures were necessary for visiting dignitaries. And I wondered what kind of welcome the person would get when they arrived at their destination. Red carpets, warm handshakes and greetings amidst the flashing bulbs of a media scrum. Or if they were an unpopular politician, the chant of protesters and yet more police to simply keep the peace. But they would get the grandest of accommodation and the best of service. I checked the news feeds to see if there was someone important coming to New Zealand, but there was no mention of anyone. Maybe if there had been someone big, there would have been even more fuss, even more ceremony, tighter security and more coverage. Um, I, you can remember, if you can remember back to when Bill Clinton uh, came to Auckland in 1999 for the APEC summit, they closed the whole of the motorway down. Or royal visits that so many look forward to and cherish. All the trappings show us how important and significant these people are. And there's a paradox in that to how Jesus enters Jerusalem and his welcome. He comes humbly riding on a donkey, a borrowed donkey at that. Today we come to look at Jesus' entry to Jerusalem amidst the crowd of pilgrims coming to the Passover festival. And we're looking at it from Luke's perspective. And one third of Luke's gospel, that's the middle bit, is taken up with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. 
It starts right after Peter's declaration that you are the Messiah in chapter 9 and the transfiguration. And Jesus starting to talk of the fact that the Messiah must suffer and die. And then in uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Jesus resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. And then the rest of the gospel is a record of what happened on that long journey. And it finishes here as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. As Jesus goes to the temple and drives out the merchants. It finishes here as he teaches and the crowds are attentive to his word. It finishes here as the religious establishment want to have Jesus killed and they put into effect the events that will lead to the cross. Jesus' death and ultimately finish with his resurrection. The events of Holy Week that we are starting today. And Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is told in four sections. And they are marked by different geographical indicators of Jesus' final journey up from Jericho to Jerusalem and on into the very temple itself. And the focus of the passage is very much on Jesus himself. Who is this person? Who is this king coming into Jerusalem? And it's full of Old Testament witness to Jesus. And it picks up themes that have been running through the gospel, that Jesus is God's chosen king. But his kingdom is totally different than the realms of this world. And it picks up that challenge in Luke's gospel of how we are supposed to respond to Jesus. Because you see, in this passage there is both worship and acclaim and disrespect and rejection. We're told Jesus went ahead, going up to Jerusalem, that he approaches the villages of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is mentioned twice in Luke's account because it's important. In Zechariah 14, verses 4 and 5, it talks of God's Messiah coming from the east, coming from the Mount of Olives. And the scene here focuses on Jesus sending his disciples to go and get a colt that had never been ridden from one of the villages. He tells his disciples that if they're asked what they're doing, to tell the person who asks that the Lord needs it, and they will be given it. And that is what happens. The motorcade that James and I saw had been meticulously planned and practiced, and there is the feel of some prior planning going into uh, the mission to go and get the donkey for Jesus. We know from John's gospel that Jesus visited Bethany on a regular uh, basis. And of course we know that in, in the first century Jewish customs, if a rabbi needed something, he could ask and it would normally be lent to him. But the emphasis in this scenario is not on Jesus the strategic planner, but his prophetic insight. And the fact that what is about to unfold is indeed planned, but it's part of God's plan. If the planning has gone on, it's God's divine plan. Jesus has on three occasions in his journey to Jerusalem told his disciples that in Jerusalem he'd be rejected, betrayed and killed, and in the final part of Luke's journey narrative that he would be raised to life again on the third day. What is about to unfold is not a tragic end to a good ministry. It's not all about political intrigue and the happenstance of history. 
It is God's purpose and God's plan, right down to the minute detail of providing a donkey. The disciples bring the donkey to Jesus and they throw their cloaks on it and in front of it on the road. And Jesus rides on the donkey as fulfillment of Scripture again. In the book of Zechariah 9.9, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This act is to show that Jesus comes as God's chosen king. The placing of cloaks in front of the donkey reinforces the picture of Jesus as king. As in 2 Kings 29.13, we have the coronation of Jehu as the king of Judea. And it tells of this tradition when kings are being crowned that cloaks were laid before their bare feet. But the donkey also speaks of what sort of king Jesus is as well. This is not the conquering hero coming to the city at the head of a victorious army on a white charger, claiming the spoils of war and demanding the accolades of the people. Commentator Daryl Bock says, the humble animal denotes not a messiah of power, but of humility and service. That this is at Passover signifies sacrifice for forgiveness of sin. God's king and God's kingdom stands in sharp juxtaposition to the realms of this world. And you know, down through history, attempts to use political or military power to install the kingdom of God have led to tragic consequences. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, parts of the Reformation where there was civil war and revolt. In recent times, aligning the Christian faith with this party or that government or putting our hope in this candidate or that candidate has done more wrong than right. We might ask ourselves, is Jesus the humble king of peace? And if we say yes, then we should see his kingdom come as he did in humble service, care and compassion for the least and the lost. And the display of the church church's reflection of Jesus' righteous and just character. You know, not demanding influence or power, but siding with those with no influence and without power. And the story moves on, and we move closer to Jerusalem. And again, we see Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives and down into the last valley before the city. And we are told that the disciples begin praising God for all the miracles that they have seen. And as the city draws near, their belief in Jesus as the Messiah turns into worship and thanks to God. Now, pilgrims coming to Jerusalem uh, would have used the Psalms of Ascent, that's Psalms 120 to 134 in the book of Psalms, as their Spotify playlist. They'd have had burned them onto a CD and put them into the CD player in their backpacks. Their Sony Walkman, perhaps you want to go old school. But they would be the songs that they would be listening to and singing. Psalm 124 is one of the psalms of ascent, which gives thanks to God for his help in a series of trials and sufferings. 
described in a wonderful array of vivid images. And I can imagine a psalm like that, one sparking the disciples to think of all God's help that they have seen in Jesus' signs and wonders. Prompts them to use the words of another psalm associated with the pilgrim to Jerusalem that encapsulates that messianic expectation because not only is it a pilgrim psalm, it's a royal psalm. Psalm 118, which says, Blessed is the one, or the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they start singing that psalm. And if you're wondering where the hosannas are in Luke's account, well, Luke's quote of Psalm 118 focuses on Jesus as king. And you know the verses right before it? That's where it says hosanna in the psalm. It's lost a little bit in translation. But save us, Lord. And then afterwards, uh, likewise, you know, you go, well, where are the palm fronds? They're not mentioned in Luke's gospel. But there they are in Psalm 118, as this quote is followed on with, uh, with talking of a procession with psalm, uh, psalm fronds. Psalm fronds to the altar in the temple. They're there. And again, it's the Old Testament witnessing to Jesus as Lord. Their response to Jesus is to praise God for all the things that they have seen and heard, to acknowledge Jesus as their king, that their hopes for the future are in Jesus and who he is. And you know, they don't fully understand it yet. There will be big doubts and hard times and sorrow and grief ahead. God's purpose was, will look a whole lot different than uh, how they had hoped for. But their response to Jesus is faith, trust, and worship. The same response we are called to make. Their hope of heaven, its peace and glory now in this world are our hopes. Reconciliation with God and his justice and righteousness to reign. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we also see in the middle of this rejoicing, the voices of opposition that have been with Jesus all along. There are no police barricades or security guards to keep them away. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they tell him to stop his disciples singing the things that they are, to stop his disciples talking about the great things that Jesus has done. You see, the Pharisees may be spiritually blind, but they're not dumb. They know what these words mean. They know that Jesus' disciples are hailing him as king and Messiah and saviour. The Pharisees do not recognise him as such. He does not fit their image of what the king and Messiah should be. And Jesus' reply here does not quell their anxiety, but rather it fuels it. Because you see, Jesus really in an open affirmation of his Divinity, And when he says this, you've got to realize it's, a, it's an affirmation that Jesus knows that he is divine, that he is the Son of God. Because he says, you know, well, even though your Pharisees, they might have hearts of stone when it comes to Jesus, if the disciples stop singing, guess what? Creation itself is going to cry out. The rocks beneath their feet are going to proclaim who Jesus Christ is. You know... We find ourselves in this passage, hopefully, amongst the disciples. Because this is the wonderful uh, task and privilege that you and I are given to tell and share and 
what we know of Jesus and give praise to, to God for God's salvation. Creation, the Psalms tell us, speaks their praise, but without voices, without words. It's left to you and I to speak and declare the truth of Jesus to a world that needs to know. And the journey moves on. And in verse 41, it tells us that Jesus approaches Jerusalem. And as he comes out out of that last valley, the whole city comes into sight before him. And Jesus' response is to weep. In this last stretch of the journey, we've seen Jesus act as a prophet. We've seen Jesus act as the king. And now he acts in a priestly manner, weeping over Jerusalem, bringing to them to the Lord in prayer. He laments that the city and its people, represented by the Pharisees in this passage, have not recognized who he is, have not recognized that the peace they seek has come to them in the person of Jesus Christ. They have not recognized who he is, have not realized that uh, this is the time that God has visited for, the, for salvation. They have a chance to embrace a different way of living, a different way of dealing with their power, the powers who were occupying and oppressing their country. They had a different way of, of being God's kingdom with God's chosen king, but they missed it. And he uses a whole raft of military imagery, ramps being raised against the walls, siege, brutal conquest, to speak of the con to consequences of not recognizing the time of God's coming to them. A very accurate portrayal of the Roman destruction of the city in uh, 70 AD in response to a Jewish revolt a Jewish revolt seeking their independence from Rome and trying to establish their own understanding of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, as priest here, ties in with the Passover as he has come to Jerusalem not only as king, but to offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. That sacrifice which is true salvation and true peace, the peace that Jerusalem was looking for. And the narrative then changes in location again and Jesus enters the temple, cleanses it of the merchants and the moneylenders and starts to teach. And you know that's a whole sermon in itself? You know, I don't know who was in that motorcade that flashed past us on Sunday afternoon. Maybe it was just the political protection um, part of the police force having a practice like we were, James and I were, practicing on a Sunday afternoon in a drive around Auckland. I don't know where they were going or what they were about. It's just this image that was so foreign stuck into my mind. But in Luke's account of Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, we are invited to see who Jesus is. The Jewish scriptures show us the significance of his every action here. We see Jesus as prophet, king and priest. As the gospel goes on, we see it where Jesus is going. His betrayal, his death on the cross, his being raised to life again and ascending to the right hand of the Father. And we have seen what Jesus is about and experienced it in our lives as well as we have come to know his grace and his love and his calling and his purpose. And we are invited to join the disciples in giving him praise being attentive to his word, hearing it and obeying it. And we are challenged about how will we respond to Jesus. Will we reject him? 
And we know that that road leads to, to judgment. Have we got our own understanding of what it means to acknowledge Jesus as king? And today I simply want to finish by inviting us to be still and think in our own minds. How do we want to respond to Jesus? The humble servant king, the prince of peace, as he rides in. And may we not miss that time of God's salvation. Let's just be still for a moment. Lord, we want to join the crowds and sing your praise. We want to be with your disciples and pay attention to your word and put it into practice in our lives. We want to reflect your kingdom, the kingdom of a humble king who came on a borrowed donkey, the prince of peace, the one who brings his kingdom through humble service, and care for the least, and sacrificial love. Amen. Great, Christina. Thank you.